Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. My name is Andrew Harrison. Who gets to be an MP? Are we getting the right MPs? How do the two main parties in England balance the competing demands to get voters interested, keep local parties happy and manage their own internal factions all up against the biggest imperative of the lot, which is to win? We're two years at most away from the next general election and without jinxing it too much, it's highly likely there'll be more Labour and Lib Dem MPs and an unseemly scramble amongst Conservatives to grab the few Tory seats that are left. So how are Keir Starmer's attempts to stamp his authority on Labour playing out in the selections and what's going on with the Tories? Our guest today is very much on top of what's happening there. The distinguished journalist Michael Crick has been covering politics for the BBC, Channel 4 News, Newsnight, The Mail, you name it. Among other things, he's currently running the Twitter account tomorrow's mps which does exactly what it says on the tin covering selections deselections reselections and the new names that you might need to know about michael hello how are you doing uh very well thank you the trouble with this tomorrow's mps thing is it's all consuming uh and there's uh i mean there are 38 i think is the number labor selections in process right now and each right. of those has got six, eight names that I know of, probably a lot of names I don't know of that I don't get to hear about. And you've got to get on top of them, try and talk to them all. Uh, you can see it's quite a large job for something that's really only a journalistic hobby at the moment. Well, that you've been cursed with living in interesting times, haven't you? So um, we're not going to talk about the SNP or Plaid because they're kind of totally different scenarios. We're going to concentrate on England. And also, I mean, not much has actually happened with selection in, in, in the, those two countries. But on Labour and Tory in particular, are we in for a generational changeover? A kind of like a last helicopter out of Saigon for the Conservatives and a new generation of Labour MPs? Well, there will be a new generation of MPs in as much as they'll, on the whole, be younger than the existing MPs. And they'll always be known as the class of 2024 or whenever the election is. That inevitably happens in a parliament. And mm. uh, I mean, on the Conservative side, when that happens, they always have dining groups and things like that. But you always feel a certain affinity with the other people that were first elected the same year for your party. Um, but in terms of what distinguishes them on the Labour side? Well, we're now up to 40 people who've been picked to fight what I describe as winnable seats, which Labour has to win to get a majority in the House of Commons. And the pattern is, well, first of all, the left are doing abysmally. I mean, there's only one candidate out of those 40 you could describe as left wing. The other thing that is happening is that the male-female balance is about 50-50. It's 21-19. And a lot of people were worried that with the demise of all women shortlists in the Labour Party, that would be a problem. Uh, because legally, they're not allowed to carry on with this idea that a, that a shortlist in a particular constituency has got to be all women. Hmm. Uh, but the overwhelming picture is of local candidates. Uh, I mean, of the 40, 38 of them, you could say are local in somewhere or another, only two outsiders. 
Well, we'll, we'll come on to that question of local in a, in a minute, which is it's a really interesting one. But I wanted to ask you, uh, I mean, there was a great piece by Patrick Maguire in The Times today, which I think you retweeted, where he said that Starmer is fixing the selections ruthlessly, shamelessly, and unfortunately for the Corbynites, competently. Is he essentially stitching it up? Well, his people are. I don't think Starmer himself gets that involved, saying, well, I don't like him and I do like her. Uh, but he's he's delegated a couple of people in his office uh, to look after all of this very quietly. They can't be seen to interfere too much. If you are labelled as the, the leadership candidate, uh, that could be the kiss of death. So they have to do it very subtly. So they've, they've clearly identified in nearly all of these seats somebody that they'd really like. And then they have a reserve in case anything goes wrong, in case, you know, some scandal emerges at the last moment. Now, how do they promote them? Well, they can promote them in small ways by giving connections. But the way in which they help the most is by the construction of what's known as the long list. So what happens is everybody uh, is allowed to apply. There's a window of only a week where you can apply for a certain constituency. All sorts of people do apply or actually, actually, interestingly, the numbers who've been applying seem to be very low. And then the uh, representative of the national executive, a regional party and the local party all get together and they draw up a long list. And it's at that stage where people are weeded out. And the weeding out, it could be, you could say, oh, well, it's purely on the grounds of ability or experience or something. Well, there may be an element of that, but there clearly seems to have been also an element of weeding people out on the grounds uh, of their politics. Frankly, they may have tweeted something in the past uh, they may have been accused of anti-Semitism. They may have said something that could be uh, interpreted as being anti-Semitic, or they may have expressed support for another party in some way or another. Now, the left are up in arms about all of this because they say, you know, about a dozen people have been weeded out on the most spurious of grounds. Really, this process, the, the party officials, you know, they are operating, frankly, in, in almost a Stalinist manner in, in destroying the left and any association with the left. And as a result, only one of the uh, 40 candidates so far, uh, a woman called Faiza Shaheen, who's an economist, uh, hmm. she's been selected in Chingford and Woodford Green in Duncan Smith's seat. She's you know, associated, regarded as a, a Corbynite. But a lot of those types have been weeded out. And indeed, there's also been a couple of cases where people on the left, uh, sitting MPs have got into trouble. Sam Tarry, yeah. uh, Angela Rayner's uh, boyfriend, uh, he has been deselected in Ilford South in uh, the east of London. And right now there's a very um, fraught reselection battle going on in Liverpool, Liverpool West Derby. Mm. Uh, Ian Byrne is fighting for his life there. It doesn't Things don't look very promising for him. The left are doing really badly. I think there's an element of them giving up, frankly, and uh, but the the Blair the, the, sorry the Blairites the Starmerites if you can call them <laughs> uh, are, said it are being yeah. I, I, well it's you know their, their tactics are much tougher than Blair was on this. Mm. Now they would argue, look, when the when the Corbynites when were in power, when momentum was in power, they went round purging people as well. But uh, the right also made the point <laughs> um, that uh, in terms of the the deselections. It was the left that for years and years and years have been arguing in favour of local Labour parties having the power to deselect their MP. Well, I'm old enough to remember when uh, there was a, a pamphlet going around called How to Deselect Your MP. So yeah, it's got it's got a rich and ancient written by, history. Written by Chris Mullin, the, uh, the Labour MP, uh, who uh, long had, had a pretty distinguished career in Parliament himself. 
There you go. It's a deep cut. Now, it, that, that Times piece uh, by Patrick Maguire also pointed out something I hadn't really realised, which is while the Blair government had this reputation for ruthlessness, actually, in 1997, it hadn't expected to win by the vast uh, no. margin that it did. And it hadn't actually done all the due diligence on its MPs no. that it could have done. And they got quite a few rather embarrassing characters that they were stuck with. Well, that's true. And of course, they had a majority of, what, 177 or something. Mm. I mean, I don't think uh, Starmer's going to get a majority of anything like that unless the economy gets incredibly worse than it is now, which I suppose is possible. Uh, and you can't keep a track of hundreds of people. And frankly, uh, I think several of the people who were elected to Parliament back in 97 hadn't expected to be elected either and frankly weren't prepared for it they were sort of uh, you know in a way that some of them probably wish they hadn't been elected so it was a, it was a bit of a mess i mean it didn't mm. cause any huge embarrassment you know there was uh, the helen brinton who shortly afterwards i think not only a few years later joined the conservatives but the the parties have been a bit lax at times at looking into people's pasts I mean, actually, Labour in 2017, when under Corbyn is the probably the best example. Uh, if you remember the 2017 election was suddenly called out of the blue by Theresa May and Labour hadn't selected a single candidate anywhere apart from its sitting MPs. And uh, so they quickly rushed round and selected people in the, in the seats that they didn't hold uh, without interviewing them, without having to make speeches or anything like that. And as a result, they ended up with the very unfortunate experience of Jared Amara in Sheffield Hallam, who replaced Nick Clegg, much to everybody's surprise when the election happened and Labour did much better than anybody had expected. Um, and also Fiona Onasanya, the uh, MP for Peterborough, who went uh, ended up in jail. She was part of that batch of 24 MPs elected for Labour, gains for Labour, people who hadn't been in the House before the election, who were chosen with barely any of the normal processes. None of the checks were done properly. Mm. And this time round, I think they are being a bit more careful. Clearly, they're going through everybody's social media back to the year dot whenever social media began and, uh, and dragging out uh, all sorts of um, uh, comments in, in people's past, which is being held, held against them if they're on the on the left, but doesn't seem to be being held against them quite as assiduously uh, if they're on the right. You mentioned earlier the real concentration on local candidates, local candidates for local constituencies. Everybody seems to have to have a connection with the constituency now. And before we recorded this podcast, you were saying to me that it's sort of changing the capacity to have the sort of political giants that we had of the past, you know, who for whom their constituency wasn't particularly important, but their their role across the national landscape. You know, the Roy Hattersley's, he's Sparkbrook, but was m known primarily as a national figure. Harold Wilson in Ormskirk and then Heighton. Blair in Sedgefield. And it does the dependence on local politicians with a very close connection to uh, the constituency, does it change that kind of ability to develop? I mean, I hate to use the phrase big beasts, but it's the one that gets thrown around. Well, I think inevitably it does. I think if you if you restrict your candidates to people who are local, you're restricting the amount of choice. And there are often people who, I mean, if you're, say, a Conservative brought up in the South Wales Valleys or a Labour person brought up in Surrey, uh, like Sir Keir Starmer, um, mm. uh, then uh, you're not going to get very far in politics if you're, if you're confined to the area where you live or where you come from. What happens is, of course, a lot of people who have been brought up all over the country, the best and the brightest often 
progress to London and go and work for members of parliament or for the shadow cabinet or for trades unions or think tanks or, or what have you. Uh, and so therefore they've got a, an adopted place, which is London. And then they've got the, the place where they grew up, uh, which is their locality. And a lot of those may have then become London councillors. And now they're trying to go back to the place where they came from. Um, and sometimes the locals in the places where they came from say, well, you're not really local. You may have been born and bred around here, but you've lived the last 20 years of your life in London. And there is an amazing, in my view, amount of intolerance on this. I mean, in a way, it's understandable that the local parties should be like this from a political tactical point of view, in that this is often what voters say. They often say that an MP should be, can only represent the constituency properly if they are local, if they grew up there, if they, if they know the, knew the constituency. Um, but of course, I'd, I'd make two counterpoints to that. And I do feel very strongly about it, this issue, that it's doing politics as a whole a lot of harm. The first point I'd make is when local parties are choosing members of parliament, they're not just choosing an individual to represent that constituency at Westminster. They're also choosing one of the pool of people from whom the next government might be formed. In other words, they should be thinking about, is this person a potential minister or a potential cabinet minister? The second point I'd make is, if, as you suggested, Andrew, you go back into your into history and look at all the great figures in political history, a huge number of them did not represent the constituency that you would have said was local. And I do think that this this trend is is damaging politics because it's it means that a lot of people are put off going into politics. As things stand, it's very difficult to start going around to other places and and, and in the way that people would have done up until not that long ago. In fact, I mean there are some exceptions. There's a guy called Hamish Faulkner who mm. is uh, the son of Charlie Faulkner, the former Labour Justice Secretary and Lord Chancellor and um, close friend of uh, Tony Blair, and he is trying to become the candidate for Lincoln. He's spent a lot of time in Lincoln holding meetings, and he does seem to have a considerable amount of support in Lincoln and is likely to get the nomination, I think. And he does have an incredibly impressive CV. He's only 36. He's a potential future uh, cabinet minister, just like his dad. Um, But the examples of that these days are rare. You know, I'm not Mm. sure Tony Blair would have got a last minute seat in 1983. Um, I think it would have been difficult for the Miliband brothers to get the seats that they got in South Shields and Doncaster, what, only 20 years ago. I think it would have been difficult for them to do that now. And we see the same in the Liberal Democrats and to a lesser extent, the same in the Conservatives. Well, something else you mentioned when we were chatting before we recorded this was that um, when you select in that way, you also kind of you sort of tilt your talent pool, as it were, in the direction of people who've run municipal services. Yes. They've run yes. medium-sized organisations, but, yes. but not necessarily people who are used to the massively big jobs and massively big decisions that go with being a cabinet minister. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm not against councillors going to the House of Commons. I think, mm. you know, a good sprinkling of councillors is a jolly good thing. And they do have experience of wielding power. Although, actually, I think that when they get to Westminster, they can find it a lot more frustrating uh, than running a council. Yeah. You get a lot more opposition. But the the issues that councillors are involved in uh, is just are only part of the political spectrum. So you've got housing and education and social care, transport, but they're not the big issues of politics. They're like the economy or foreign affairs or defence. The other thing I would say is that the, the, the track record, I mean, if you take the... Um, the 40 Labour candidates chosen in winnable seats so far, 
13 of them, in other words, a third, have been uh, local government leaders or deputy leaders. But the, the, the track record of local government leaders at Westminster isn't that impressive. I mean, a few have done all right. David Blunkett, Herbert Morrison, way back in the days of the Attlee government after the war. Hilary Benn is another example. But there are quite a few local government leaders who've been really successful in their locality. People like Graham Stringer, who ran Manchester for 10 years, or John Trickett, who ran Leeds for 10 years, or Peter Soulsby, who ran Leicester, who've gone to Westminster and found themselves frustrated. And the danger for Labour right now is that, you know, the vast number, three quarters of it, of the parliamentary party could be councillors or uh, former councillors. And I think that uh, for a successful party, a pool of people of 350, 400 people from whom Keir Starmer might form the next government, he needs a bit more variety than that. And what we've seen so far is that it's it's sort of 80% councillors. And what they're lacking so far is, the, the other thing they're lacking is big names who've done something else in, you know, made their yeah. name outside politics to start with. Now, Ed, Eddie Izzard, she is uh, trying to get selected in uh, Sheffield Central, which is a, a, a rock-solid Labour seat. Uh, and also going for Sheffield Central is uh, Paul Mason, the broadcaster and journalist, former colleague of mine. Uh, neither of them look like getting that seat, it must be said. Whereas normally at an election, you do get uh, a few star names suddenly elected into Parliament. People like, you know, Seb Coe or Glenda Jackson, mm. uh, or people who've been trade union leaders and, and made their name there, like uh, Alan Johnson, or people who've made their name uh, in business. Or you can remember Clement Freud, he, uh, yeah. you know, the, uh, he was a, a, a celebrity uh, when he was first elected way back in, in the 70s. So, uh, but so far, there hasn't really been anybody like that. But I mean, it's early days yet. They, you know, there's another uh, many hundreds more Labour candidates uh, to, to, to be chosen. And of course, people for the uh, other parties. So yes, the Conservatives. We haven't mentioned them at all. And no. I, so I mentioned at the top of the show that it's essentially like you know three people scrambling for every seat and a kind of desperate rush for the lifeboats. Um, what what is happening there? Well, they've chosen about half a dozen people so far, uh, so there's not much there, hmm. too many, too few to spot any trends. What what is both interesting though is that remember they lost those two by elections last year um, in uh, North Shropshire and before that in um, Chesham and Amersham. And in both seats, they had outside candidates, uh, did the Conservatives. Mm. And there was a backlash locally. And they said, right, we're not having another outsider. And you remember in, in the North Shropshire, the um, candidate from Birmingham was denounced by the Liberal Democrats as a barrister from Birmingham. <laughs> um, as if this was the, you know, the, the incarnation of the yes. devil. But, but the parties in both North Shropshire and in Chesham and Amersham have selected new candidates for the general election. And in both cases, they're very local. Now, what will happen with the Conservatives is that because the Conservative operation at the next election is going to be largely defensive, holding on to what they've got, or almost entirely defensive, they haven't really got any target seats. But there will be seats where people are stepping down. There's about a half a dozen Conservative MPs who have announced their retirement so far. And I think we can expect many dozens more. So ambitious young Conservative would-be MPs will have their eyes on some of those seats. In some cases, they may even go and live in those seats. It has been known in order to present themselves as being a bit more local than they really are. And often what happens in these processes, at the last minute, it gives an opportunity for the party leadership, the party high command to say, well, 
It's all last minute. We haven't really got a time to run a proper democratic selection process. So here you are. Here's a short list of three people, and you can choose between one of them. Um, and on the short list, there will be one person who's uh, clearly able and good, and that will be the party leadership's choice. And then they'll put a couple of duffers on there in order to make it look like they've got an element of democracy. But really, the party members have no real choice. And that's a trick that both the Labour Party play, by the way, and the Conservative Party. So, so that's uh, what's happening with the Conservatives. The other thing that Conservatives will be looking out for uh, we get, we're due to get the final version of the boundary changes, the constituency boundary changes. It's reckoned that those changes will give the Conservatives about a dozen extra seats. So uh, all is not lost for would-be uh, Conservatives. And I suppose it's possible that uh, public opinion will swing back behind Rishi Sunak if things start to go well and he turns the economy around. Uh, and they might even start thinking about the odd target seat although it's difficult as things stand to see them picking up any seats from Labour at the next election. But, you know, these things do happen. We'll get letters if I don't ask you about the Lib Dems. Any trends happening there? Well, the Lib Dems have chosen uh, pretty much all their candidates for their target seats. Uh, And to be honest, they don't have many target seats in reality, only about 20, uh, which would put them up to sort of the mid-30s in terms of the number of MPs they've got. Problem with the Lib Dems have always had is that their candidates in the past have tended to be very white and uh, middle class. Uh, and that partly reflects the fact that most of their seats are very white and middle class. Now, this time round, they've managed to remedy that a bit. And uh, I mean, there's an interesting guy uh, called uh, Josh Babarindi in um, Eastbourne, who has a, uh, who's black. And indeed, he's been chosen. He was one of the first to be chosen. Um, he's a social entrepreneur. He's uh, he's been doing really well. He's uh, he got a an MBA, I think, or, or, or one of those honors. And they've chosen one or two other people from ethnic backgrounds. So that's a, um, uh, a, a an interesting uh, development. But again, it's it's mostly local people and it's mostly councillors. Nearly all the candidates they've chosen either are councillors right now or they have been councillors in the past. Another interesting one for the Lib Dems is Edward Lucas, uh, who. Um, uh, is a you, you may know the name as a, a columnist on the Times who writes a lot about security and foreign affairs. He's been chosen to fight the cities of London and Westminster seat, which looked like a good Lib Dem prospect at one time, though less so now. But working out what really are Lib, you know, genuine Lib Dem targets uh, is quite tricky because there's clearly been a sort of understanding, I think between Labour and the Lib Dems in the last few years. Nothing they ever want to talk about, nothing on paper, but that, you know, you concentrate on these seats and we'll concentrate on those seats. Um, And uh, which is a form of tactical voting, of course, that's been around for a long time. But I think it's now stronger than it's than it's ever been and will be stronger than it's ever been at the election. And so therefore, you that could give the Lib Dems a boost. And clearly also, I think that the disaffection with the Conservatives in, say, the southeast in places that, like the, where the by-elections were, the, the Chesham and Amersham by-election, but those kind of places, are the home counties, I think in those areas, you may find a lot of the disaffection with the Conservatives goes to the Lib Dems rather than to uh, Labour. Well, if you want to keep on top of all this stuff, I would advise you to follow tomorrow's MPs uh, on Twitter, if you're still doing Twitter, if you haven't uh, run away from Elon Musk, because it's Michael's fantastic update on exactly what's happening in all these races. Michael, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you, Andrew. Listeners, uh, whether you are standing to be your local MP or not, don't miss The Bunker every morning. We'll keep you connected to everything that matters in politics. And you can help us out in our mission by supporting us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get the podcast early and without ads, plus loads of other extras, and you'll be helping us to keep going. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out a bit more, and we will see you tomorrow. The Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And our theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.